Hello, my name is Calvin Bell III. I'm a junior political science and philosophy double major from Pensacola, New Jersey, and you're watching the More Conversations podcast hosted by the Andrew Young Center for Global Leadership. And today I'm about to have a dynamic and dope conversation with a writer, scholar, and public speaker, Ronnie Spivy Jones. How are you doing today, Ronnie? I'm doing good. Good, good to be good. here. Good. Um, so I'm so excited for this conversation. And my first question is for those that have never seen, heard, or talked about college behind bars, can you kind of discuss and talk about the different variances of that documentary series? So College Behind Bars is an in-depth uh, look at what college looks like in prison. So it follows for about four years, it follows a group of students who uh, start off with the associates program and go off to earn their bachelor's degree while incarcerated. And it looks at everything. It 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 uh, poses the question, why is college and prison important? And I think it really does a good job of humanizing the students who are incarcerated. And if you haven't seen it, if you haven't seen it for all of your viewers, uh, it's, it's really an, an important documentary. You should check it out. So I kind of want to start from how we even got here, how you were uh, a part of College Behind Bars. What was your experience during that uh, docu-series? And if you could just touch on that a little bit more. Yeah. So first of all, I thought it was in, it was important to get involved with the documentary. For one, everyone trusted Linovic, who directed the film. And two... I knew it was going to be uh, aired anyway. And my way of looking at it was, I can't let someone tell the story. I have to be a part of that narrative, shaping that narrative. And this is at a time, we're talking about 2015 or 2014, that the documentary, documentary was first being filmed when the country was having a lot to say about incarcerated people. And I thought it was important to change that, that monster narrative that, that permeates our culture. So as someone who was a student, a part of the program, did you feel like your scholarship was being birthed through this program? How did it change your notions and outlooks on education? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, it definitely, I don't think I would have been thinking about scholarship had not BPI, Bard Prison Initiative, presented this opportunity to earn a college education. I think I would have just been thinking about it. These thoughts would have just stayed in my mind, that's it. Uh, and the the opportunity to write a senior project. We're talking about a research paper that takes about a year, sometimes longer to write, and it's 60, 65 plus pages to talk, to write about something that you feel passionate about, something that's important. And I don't think I would have had the opportunity to do that at all, or even had thought about doing that had not BPI presented the opportunity to do so. And just considering myself a scholar while incarcerated, having anyone consider me a scholar, like that, that was a big deal. Um, before BPI, I was a prisoner trying to get through my time, trying to uh, hopefully get to the end of 20 years of life. So it was, it was definitely an important uh, part of my, my experience. So when you talk about the scholarship that you created and wrote about, it touches on black disfigurement mm -hmm. and uh, the American hieroglyphics of race. Right. And so could you just go into detail about the nuances of this paper and the complexity that you were trying to look for when you were writing the paper? So black disfigurement is used as a metaphor. 
And of course, if, if anyone's read the paper, and, and I encourage anyone, anyone who's listening to this to, to read the paper, but for those of us who read the paper, uh, we know that I speak about Emmett Till. I write about Emmett Till and the way in which his body was mutilated. And this figurement doesn't just speak about the physical ways in which the black body has been disfigured throughout history. Emmett Till is just one example. It also speaks about identity, the ways in which we take a group of people, we take people that we call black, and we take something that may be true about one individual, the worst thing they, that they've ever done, and we amplify that worst thing that they've ever done. And all of the things that make them human, all the qualities that connect all of us as human, those recede into the background. And this individual, this the worst thing that they've ever done comes to represent the entire group. And I think that's what's happening in America today. And that's what's been happening in America today. And when I speak about American hieroglyphics of race, is there's some connection between black disfigurement and hieroglyphics of race. I'm, for example, I'm, I'm speaking about statistics. Statistics are often accepted as truth. They're facts. We don't question, for example, the statistic that says that black boys are more likely to go to prison than graduate from high school and earn a college degree. We simply accept that as fact. So when we say black boy, what image, which image comes to mind? Probably someone who won't be successful. Probably someone who is more likely to have a child out of wedlock. These are the kinds of narratives that we continuously hear throughout this country. So American hieroglyphics and black disfigurement, that's, that's part of what I mean. But I'm looking at the entire history from Emmett Till to the Black Lives Matter movement, and we continue to see these same sorts of narratives. It gets really complicated in the article, and it's, it's kind of a difficult space to discuss all of the nuances here. Read the article, and it'll, it'll elucidate a lot of what I'm talking about here. And I think that's so powerful and rich, seeing that, there's so much literature that has been written around the idea of the black body. Mm-hmm. We we have Ta-Nehisi Coates between the world and me when he talks about the black body. And then we also have Ralph Ellison who talks about invisible man um, and the black body being invisible. We have mm-hmm. W.E.B. Du Bois who talks about the veil of double consciousness. Right. And so I'm wondering how your scholarship that you wrote and are working on and uh, this article that you cultivated kind of adds to the current discussions and conversations about the permeating forces that are pressed upon the black body. So I think one important thing that I mentioned in the article that we don't often speak about, or I haven't had much of a chance to speak about, is it being messianic, it being a container, symbolically a container for all of the history that's been heaped upon the quote-unquote black body. So the history of enslavement, the history of resistance, the histories of the civil rights movement, the black power movement, and all of the death and mutilation that black people have experienced. So, for example, if you look at uh, Mike Brown and the ways in which his body was just left lying in the middle, middle of the street for four and a half hours, a lot of activists, they thought about the death of Emmett Till and all of the other, um, the, all of the other violence that black people have experienced collectively. 
I don't think other scholars or writers are looking at the body in that way. So it, it becomes something that is generational. It's that, generational, absolutely. That, yeah. that we reflect on and go back to when we are currently in a space of police brutality. It is a reminding circumstance that this has occurred already. Right. So does that play to the idea that history repeats itself or is just repeating itself in a different faction or way? Well, there's certain... So that's that's interesting too. It's not history repeating itself, but it's it's somewhat, in some ways, citational. It's still dealing with the social, the same social issues, but it's turned differently. We are still fighting the same source of causes that we were fighting during the civil rights movement. And that's part of what the black body at some, at some instances comes to represent. So now that you have worked on this article and have culminated all your thoughts together, you leave with this article what is your thought process in terms of what's next once you uh, left the carceral state and now are back into uh, this space of life outside of the bars? So right now I'm, I'm looking at, I'm part of a research team and we're looking at the effects that college and prison programs have on social and civic engagement for people who are still incarcerated and people who are home now. Uh, I'm also working on a book and that basically chronicles the first two years I've been home. I've been home for a year and a few months now. So hopefully that is enlightening for people who have experienced incarceration and those of us who know nothing about it. And so to keep on to that point of your current research around civic engagement, I think about voter disenfranchisement on the local level here in Georgia. But then I also think about felony disenfranchisement. And the idea that once you go in the carceral state and become someone who has a number written on them, that you are t- your rights are taken away from you. The idea that you are a full civic human being within the American system. Can you touch on that a little bit? Oh, yeah. This is something that I think is very important. It's, it's, uh, it's dear to my heart. I think that every incarcerated person should have the right to vote. It's, it's one thing to experience a social death, which is what uh, a prison experience is really all about. It's another thing entirely to have to experience a civic death as well. I can't see a justification for that, for denying someone the right to vote, to be civically engaged in their community simply because they are somewhere else. They're inside of a prison. I think that kind of isolation, what it does is it... It creates this this uh, us versus them mentality for some incarcerated people. And it's difficult for someone to transition smoothly into a community that they are not a part of, that they're told that they can't be a part of. So civic involvement, being civically engaged for everyone, especially incarcerated people, is very important. And I remember yesterday a student asking you about whether you would run for politics yourself. However, I think that that conversation has more meaning to it that within civic engagement in general, because there are so many different ways that you can be civically engaged. What and why is it so powerful for those that were formerly incarcerated to be in these spaces advocating on behalf of not only those that are incarcerated, but for communities such as communities of color? 
we need diversity of experiences everywhere and not just race, not just class, but experiences. I think those of us who have experienced incarceration, we bring a different lens. We bring a different perspective to perspectives, to problems that, you know, these are intractable problems. Poverty, crime, uh, who best to go into a neighborhood that is full of gang violence than someone who has experienced it firsthand and knows all of the players, right? Who can speak most about how important it is to be involved in a community than someone who knows what it feels like not to be considered part of that community? And I I think about even the nuances in terms of the carceral state, how we are positioned in a place where we must not conflate the idea that it's a rehabilitative state or rehabilitative state, but a place that is a punitive. And so could you engage in that conversation a little bit about differentiating between the idea that America puts out that the carceral state is a rehabilitative institution with the experiences that you feel when it is punitive and disciplinary? Oh, prison is a punitive space, period. You can't have rehabilitation in a punitive space. There are a bunch of programs inside prisons, and especially New York State, and I'm pretty sure it's that that way in Georgia and, and elsewhere as, as well, where you it's mandated that you take some of these programs. But these programs really emphasize your brokenness, that there's something wrong with you, and you hear it day in and day out. So for someone who has a mental health crisis, what's likely to happen in a New York state prison is that you're thrown inside of a cell and you're stripped naked and you have an officer outside the gate watching you for 24 hours. Where's the rehabilitation there? Where's the rehabilitation there? It doesn't happen. If you want to create rehabilitation inside of any institution, it needs to be less punitive or perhaps not punitive at all. And, and I think that is so rich because from the outside looking in, we have, I would say a pornographic usage of the carceral state and movies and television shows Mm -hmm. that people just take all this in and create their preconceived notions of what they think the carceral state is. However, when you are engaging in conversation with one that has either been impacted by it, like myself with my father or someone like you who has gone through that experience, I think the conversations are divergently different overall. And so I bring this up because now institutions, academic institutions are engaging in conversations around carceral studies, carceral scholarship in spaces where scholar activists are coming about, writers are coming about speaking on the ideas of disciplinary society and punitive natures. And so I wonder what that space looks like now within the academy, if you can talk about that a little bit. I, you know, I really, I really don't know the answer to that question, what it looks like uh, within academies. Uh, what I can say is that there are quite a few people like me who are earning a college degree while incarcerated, and they're asking these questions. And that's important. I think in academia, in a traditional uh, university or college campus, what we should be doing is inviting more of those voices. 
instead of speaking about the people who are who are experiencing them, allowing them to come into these institutions and make sure that their voices are centered. So I just want to come with a culminating question about this experience. It has been transformative to have you here throughout the week. And so I wonder what place HBCUs play in terms of the conversations around prison education initiatives here in America. HBCUs should be leading this movement, period. So I was lucky enough to be a part of the Bard Prison Initiative. I love the program. I'm grateful. Uh, You know, I've learned a lot. I have always asked myself the question over seven, eight years that I was a part of the BPI program, where are the HBCUs? And I think back to the history of HBCUs and how they came into being. From what I've read, you know, the HBCUs were meant to help formerly enslaved people gain a foothold in society. The, the, The closest parallel to formerly enslaved people today, I think, are incarcerated people. And if HBCUs aren't leading the movement of, of college and prison programming, then they're not holding up to, the, the, to, the, to that mission. Like, we have to continue that fight. And I think those words are important and valuable. And I hope that your experience here has touched not only students, but also faculty and staff who may have not talked about, discussed, or even thought about the idea of education behind bars. And so thank you so much, Ronnie. I appreciate your authenticity, your openness, willingness, and intellect, of course. Thank you. And and bringing that wisdom here to the gates of Morehouse College. Thank you for having me. And so this is the More Conversations podcast, and we are out.